May the name of the Lord be glorified. For scripture reading, uh, shall we turn to Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 to 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, and I'll test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched my heart in I searched in my heart how while how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchids and planted all kinds of fruits in them, fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herd and flock than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of provinces. Provinces. I acquired male and female singers and the delights of, song, of sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on the works of, that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun." Shall we pray? Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful day that you've blessed us with, O Lord. Thank you for enabling us to come together and to uh, sing praises and worship your name. As now we are seated to uh, hear from your word, O Father, we pray that your servant will convey the, convey the message uh, meaningfully and also, and also that this message would impact us in our daily lives, O Father. And all I ask in the precious name of the Lord and of Jesus Christ. Good morning. Um, I am not in the best of health, and I have not been in the last two, three days. Voice has been hurting, so please give me your undivided attention and uh, say a small prayer for me, please, even as I speak here, that I'd be able to sustain uh, through this sermon. <clears throat> when she was 13 years old, uh, Jen Cohen fell in love with circus. And all of a sudden, she worked really hard, although it was pretty unusual at that time to make a career in circus. This highly qualified woman, uh, who was very, doing very well in middle school, she thought she would work really hard and make it big in circus. And she went to a point where she was performing in Europe and London and all of these things, garnering accolades and attention. And all of a sudden, she said in her TED Talk, inspiring TED Talk, in fact, she said that she felt empty. When she reached the top, when she garnered all the attention that she wanted from the world, she said she felt empty. And these were, his, uh, these were her words. Uh, listen to this. Just a couple of sentences. She said, I thought when I'm at the top of my career, I will feel loved. I will be in front of audiences and that will fill me. I will feel good enough. I can take it in. I can receive. Once I'm successful, I can feel good about myself. But that didn't happen. And in fact, that is a lesson that even though I learned it very acutely at, at that point of my life, I continue to have to relearn it. And I forget and I, rem and I remember that success isn't what brings me happiness in life. Success isn't what brings me happiness in life. It could have happened in your life too. And most of us seated here are working professionals. Perhaps you've been waiting for this particular day for a long time because there is going to be a reward for you at work, some achievement or some accomplishment that you're going to make that particular day. And when you went to work and actually accomplished it, just when you thought that you would have a rewarding day, you found out that you were not just not in a celebratory mood, but in fact you were sliding in the other direction. 
you went into a kind of a mini depression. Can you relate to that? Is it possible that it happened in your life at least once that you wanted a particular reward, you wanted to achieve something in life, and when you got there, you actually felt very empty. You actually felt like nothing has been achieved. Why does that happen? Now, this brings to our minds several fundamental questions of life, and we need to answer those questions very seriously from the Word of God. Now listen to these questions, please, and ponder them even as we speak about it and try to find the answers from God's word. Does the pleasure that I pursue in my achievements or projects bring ultimate satisfaction for my life? Did you hear that? Does the pleasure that I pursue in my achievements or in my projects bring ultimate satisfaction to my soul? Or better, how do I relate to pleasure as a Christian. How do I relate to pleasure as a Christian? This morning, you may be seated here seeking answers to these very questions. Probably these questions, these very questions have long plagued your life. If so, this morning's passage from the book of Ecclesiastes will guide you in this endeavor. Solomon here is talking about how fleeting and how disappointing pleasure is from a purely earthly standpoint. From a purely earthly standpoint, when you take God's revelation away, when you lock God out of this system, pleasure is just like a chasing after the wind. It's meaningless. It's vanity is what Solomon says. So today's passage will reveal for us four things, four things that we need to understand about finding lasting satisfaction in our pursuit of pleasure. Four things to find lasting satisfaction in our pursuit of pleasure. And as was read for us by Sean, uh, we will be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And thank you, Sean, for the reading of the word. So let's move forward. In verses 1 through 3, you will see that the pursuit of pleasure through indulgences is meaningless. The pursuit of pleasure through indulgences is meaningless. Solomon emphatically says that the quest for self-centered pleasure does not provide ultimate satisfaction. The quest for self-centered pleasure does not provide ultimate satisfaction. I think that's a very powerful testimony here by Solomon. He explains why he came to this conclusion by talking about three things. He experimented, he says, and he talks about three experiments. We'll look at it one by one. Firstly, Solomon's quest in hedonism was futile. His quest in hedonism was futile. Look at verse 1. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. The Solomon of Ecclesiastes asked some weighty questions about life, and we've been looking at it right from chapter 1, verse 1. Is there all there is to life? Is there something more to life? Are the questions that Solomon has been asking. So first, he tried to think his way to an answer purely by his cerebral knowledge or by means of his knowledge, by means of the wisdom that he gained from an earthly perspective. And all of a sudden, he found out that when he tried to figure out the mysteries of existence, just by mere knowledge, he found that it's just vanity. It is just meaninglessness. So the preacher here decided to take another approach. The other approach that he takes is he started talking to himself just like he was in chapter 1. But now, he doesn't talk to himself about some great theological aspects like the grace of God or the goodness of God. But what does he do here? He starts talking to himself about getting more out of life. Look at these words in verse 1. He said to his soul, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. The word test here tells us that what follows in these verses Till verse 11 is an experiment. It is a deliberate attempt to learn something from personal experience. And the word pleasure shows that he wants what he wants that experience to be or what he wants to pursue in that experience. He wants to experience the good of life. Solomon wants to experience the goodness of life. Another important word which gets repeated in every single verse in this passage is the word I. Solomon here is speaking autobiographically, but does he really need to use the word me, I, myself about 40 times in this passage? 
In 11 verses, he uses the word I, me, myself 40 times in this passage. So clearly, he is self-indulgent in the pursuit of self-centered pleasure. So Kohelet here, or the preacher here, became an experimental hedonist. Hedonism is devotion to pleasure, especially to the pleasure of the senses. The thesis of hedonism is that pleasure is the highest good, and the pursuit of pleasure is what gives life meaning. So Solomon chose to make his personal happiness the ultimate pursuit of his life, and that's what he wanted to begin to experiment with. You know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In a perverse reversal of it, Solomon wanted to enjoy himself and wanted to glorify himself in these pleasures. And what does Solomon conclude? Almost immediately, he comes and tells us that this new quest failed as spectacularly as the first one did. It failed as spectacularly as the first one did. Look at the last part of verse 1. But behold, this also was vanity. Pleasure did not satisfy his soul any more than knowledge did or any more than wisdom did. Although it seemed to hold out some kind of a promise for him, it did not ultimately. It vaporized or it was like a mist. It was like a chasing after the wind. He says nothing was gained by the pursuit of pleasure through hedonism. So Solomon's quest in hedonism was futile. Then there's a second experiment that Solomon conducted. Solomon discovered that laughter is a useless pleasure. Laughter is a useless pleasure. Look at verse 2. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? Now, just in case we think that the preacher or Kohelet did not give hedonism a fair chance, when we look at it, right from verses 3 to 8, he lists out all the pleasures that he enjoyed. We look at them one by one. But first, he experimented with comedy. He experimented with comedy. Now, I want to say this very carefully here. Some people deal with their insecurities by joking about somebody else or by joking about something else. When they're down, they make fun of other people. When they're bored, they're actually looking for something to make them laugh, probably a YouTube video or a clipping. And Solomon says he tried this too. And yet, it did not bring him lasting fulfillment. He says, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Here, madness, the word in the Hebrew, indicates moral perversity. He, he, he got into crude jokes. And then he says, it is all vanity. It is all vanity. I want to remind you, dear church family, that there is a kind of joyful laughter that comes out of our enjoyment of the goodness of God. There is a right way to laugh. There is a right way to joke as well. But there is a world of a difference between joking because we enjoy the goodness of God or joking at someone else's expense. And Kohelet here discovered that when it comes to the meaning of our existence, laughter is futile. Laughter is a useless pleasure. You know, the reason is life is hardly a laughing matter. Life is hardly a laughing matter. We can't joke about everything in life. Life is a serious one. And I also want to remind each one of us here, including myself, that there is nothing funny about the funeral of anybody who's died without Jesus Christ. Solomon's discovered that laughter is a useless pleasure. Third experiment, Solomon says, he, Solomon attempted to find satisfaction in alcohol. He attempted to find satisfaction in alcohol. Look at verse 3. I search with my heart to cheer <clears throat> my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. The next pleasure that the preacher or Solomon tried was alcohol. Now, there are usually two reasons why people try alcohol. One is to enjoy life. Number one is to forget the problems of life. And here Solomon says he chose to cheer his body with wine. He chose to cheer his body with wine. Maybe this means that he was abusing alcohol just like a lot of people do in the modern-day world. He was perhaps get, uh, drinking to get drunk. He was drinking to get drunk. And yet the preacher claimed here that his heart was still guiding him with wisdom. 
So I want to be careful in the interpretation of this verse here. If you remember, in one of Solomon's famous proverbs, he says, wine is a mocker, intoxicating arouses brawling, and he who is led astray by it is not wise. So I think, based on this particular verse, maybe Solomon's wine-tasting experiment was a very controlled one. He was not getting drunk after all, but he was just tasting wine here. And yet, Solomon says that it was also meaningless. It was also vanity or a chasing after the wind. And here at the end of verse 3, Solomon introduces us to the theme of the rest of the book, and that is the brevity of life, how short life is. Look at what he says at the end of verse 3. During the few days of their life, during the few days of their life, The point here is, because life is so short, we need to pursue pleasure while we still can. And that's what Solomon did. So Solomon attempted to find satisfaction in alcohol. So in verses 1, 2, and 3, we saw that the pursuit of pleasure through indulgences is meaningless. Then there's a second thing that Solomon says here about finding lasting fulfillment in our pursuit of pleasure. And that is in verses 4 through 6. They say that... Pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure through projects is meaningless. The pursuit of pleasure through projects is meaningless. The quest for pleasure in ventures and great undertakings does not bring ultimate fulfillment. It does not bring ultimate fulfillment. And Solomon says he did three things once again. Let's go one by one very briefly because we'll have to cover the rest of the points as well. Firstly, Solomon says that He built houses and planted vineyards for himself. Look at verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Now the preacher king was rich enough to buy and try many other pleasures in his life. He built a beautiful home where he planted a garden in front of it as well. Remember from the Bible that Solomon was a great architect. He was a developer. He was a builder. And he spent more than a decade building his own palace. And he was also skilled, he says, in viniculture, the production of wine. So Solomon built houses and planted vineyards for himself. Secondly, the second project that Solomon undertook was he made gardens and parks for himself. Look at verse 5. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. He was equally adept and involved in horticulture and silviculture, planting flowers and fruit trees here. Now, if you remember, in the ancient Near East, a beautiful garden was a sign of luxury, as it was for pleasure as well. And Solomon here is able to afford that, and Solomon made gardens and parks for himself. Thirdly, Solomon made irrigation ponds for himself. Verse 6, I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Now, this lush green vegetation was irrigated by reservoirs large enough to irrigate a small forest. That's the project that Solomon undertook here. Only a great man can attempt such a massive project or such a massive undertaking. To understand the scope of his achievement, we must see how the preacher mentions everything in the plural here. Houses, not a house. Houses. Vineyards, gardens, and parks, trees, and pools. And best of all, he did it all for himself. Solomon was not doing a community work, doing something uh, for the favor of the community. But Solomon is very candid in saying that he did it all for himself. Now, when you count the word in some translations, the word myself in these two verses, he appears, it appears almost five times. It's all about him. It's personal gratification. It's personal uh, aggrandizement. So Solomon made irrigation pa- ponds for himself. There are two things we learned from Solomon so far. The first thing is the pursuit of pleasure through indulgences is meaningless. And then Solomon also said that the pursuit of pleasure through projects is meaningless. Then there's a third thing very quickly that Solomon says about finding lasting satisfaction in our pursuit of pleasure. And that is in verses 7 and 8. They say that the pursuit of pleasure through possessions is meaningless. The pursuit of pleasure through possessions is meaningless. The quest for pleasure in assets, the quest for pleasure in money and wealth is also fleeting. 
is what is Solomon's contention here. And regarding this, Solomon has four things to say. Let's look at each one of them briefly before I move to my final point. Firstly, Solomon owned numerous slaves. Solomon owned numerous slaves. The first part of verse 7. I bought male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. Now remember in the last, uh, in the last portion of the text, we saw that he has a massive project. There was a lot of irrigation. There was a huge palace and all of that. And to, to look at all of these building projects and to maintain them, the huge property that he had, the preacher king needed a massive workforce as well. And so to that end, he purchased many slaves and many servants were born in his house as well. Now, in the year 2000, I remember, it's about some 18 years ago, I was, uh, I think I was in 12th or something, if I remember right. So uh, at that time, uh, George W. Bush won the election in the U.S. And, uh, and the newscaster who was talking about his victory and all of that, after George W. Bush, uh, assisted by the Secret Service, got into a limousine, the newscaster said, from now on, he doesn't have to open the car door by himself. From now on, he doesn't have to open the car door by himself. I think that's a bit of an overstatement, but that's exactly what Solomon was saying. I had slaves at my disposal. I had slaves and servants who were waiting on me hand and foot. They would do anything that I wanted. I bought male and female servants. In fact, there were servants uh, who were born in my house as well. Secondly, Solomon says he possessed more flocks and herds than anyone in Israel's history. Second part of verse 7, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. You know, to feed the entire palace, to feed the entire massive workforce, flocks and herds, many of his flocks and herds, ranged across his royal ranch. And the chefs in his royal kitchen prepared if you look at 1 Kings 4, if I remember right, uh, they say uh, there were 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, beside deer and gazelles and roebucks and fat and foal. All these were being prepared every single day in Solomon's royal kitchen. That is to feed a massive workforce and to feed himself as well. So Solomon says he possessed more flocks and herds than anyone in Israel's history. Thirdly, Solomon had immeasurable riches. He had immeasurable riches. Look at the first part of verse 8. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. And the treasure of kings and provinces. Needless to say, when you look at all of these things, Solomon had a great wealth. He had an enormous wealth. Some from taxing his own people and others that came as a foreign tribute. Remember, um, in 1 Kings 10... Uh, it reveals the story of the Queen of Sheba who visited Solomon. Queen of Sheba comes and says not even half has been heard about how, uh, how wealthy this man is, how, how, uh, uh, what a great wisdom this man has, and she is very impressed about him, and she leaves a lot of treasure with him. And a lot of foreign lands paid tribute to him as well. And so we see that the rest of the chapter in 1 Kings 10 talks about the amount of possessions and wealth that he possessed. Solomon had immeasurable riches at his disposal. And lastly, Solomon maintained musicians and a harem as well. He maintained musicians and a harem as well. I want to be very careful in my language uh, when, I, when I explain this verse, so take it in the right spirit, please. Verse, uh, second part of verse B, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Solomon used some of his money to listen to beautiful music and to even make beautiful music as well. In the ancient times, music was a rare pleasure. You, you had to go somewhere to some particular spot and pay a lot of money to listen to music. But Solomon says he had it right in his home. He had it right in his home. He had musicians at his disposal who were singing for his pleasure. And next, almost in a very crude way, Solomon admits that he did not withhold his sexual passions as well. He says, uh, I had many concubines, the, the delights of the sons of man. He is candid in stating that he did not refuse his eyes any pleasure that they desired. Now, sex was very common in the ancient world. 
But historians tell us this, that nobody had a sexual experience to the scale of Solomon. The Bible says that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, about 1,000 partners. And Solomon experimented with all of that. And uh, he indulged in every kind of a sexual pleasure as well. So Solomon maintained musicians and a harem as well. So far, three things we learned from Solomon before we move to our final point. First thing, can you, can you help me out here, please? The pursuit of pleasure through indulgences is meaningless. The pursuit of pleasure through projects is meaningless. And the pursuit of pleasure through possessions is meaningless as well. Then there's a final thing that Solomon says to teach us as an inference from all of his experiments. He teaches this as an inference from all of his experiments, and that is in verses 9 through 11. They say that the pursuit of pleasure for its own sake is meaningless. The pursuit of pleasure for its own sake is meaningless. The quest for pleasure just for the sake of pleasure or purely for the sake of pleasure does not bring any lasting fulfillment. And to explain this, Solomon once again has three three things to say here. We'll look at them briefly and we'll move to the applications. Firstly, Solomon says he had all the fame that he wanted. He had all the fame that he wanted. Look at verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Solomon, rather than waiting for God to make him great as God had promised him, he made himself great. In fact, he says he became more famous than anyone in Jerusalem before him. So Solomon had all the fame that he wanted. Second, Solomon did not withhold any pleasure from himself. Verse 10, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. My heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was a reward for my toil. Solomon thought that he deserved to bathe himself in all types of pleasure. Look at what he says. He says he viewed pleasure as a reward for his hard work. I've done all of this hard work. I've built all these massive things. And so let me just indulge myself into all these pleasures as a reward for my hard work. That's how Solomon looks at it. And he says whenever he was tempted, he just gave in to it. Whatever he wanted, whatever his eyes desired, he just got it for himself. And he had the money for it as well. Solomon did not withhold any pleasure from himself. And lastly, Solomon concluded that the pleasures he enjoyed did not bring ultimate satisfaction. The pleasures that he enjoyed did not bring ultimate satisfaction. Verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Once again, we come to a familiar conclusion that Solomon already came to in chapter 1 as well. Solomon's search for satisfaction and pleasure was a futile one, was a meaningless one. It was like a chasing after the wind. It's like a mist that disappears, and you cannot just hold the wind in your hands. He successfully pursued every area of fleshly indulgence and pleasure and found that it brought no lasting satisfaction. It does not satisfy your soul or my soul. Now listen very carefully, please. Wine, women, song, Solomon had it all. Solomon enjoyed it all. And today, his face would be on the cover of Fortune magazine. Probably his, uh, his uh, edifice or his huge palace would be featured in Architectural Digest. Pop stars would come and sing at his birthday party. And probably great movie stars, world-famous movie stars, Hollywood stars would frequent his home. It's not hard for us to envy this man, at least a little bit. Let's be honest about it. Wouldn't you want to live like a king or a queen? Wouldn't you want somebody else to do your dirty work without you having to do it all the time? But before you say yes to all these questions, let me say this, and let me ask you this question. What happens to people who pursue any and every pleasure as the main purpose of their life? What happens to people who pursue any and every pleasure as the main purpose of their life? 
Listen to it in the very words of Solomon. He says in verse 11, Then I considered all my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, a chasing after the wind, and nothing was to be gained under the sun. Nothing was to be gained under the sun. Let me pause here for a moment and just talk to you personally as I talk to myself. What does your pursuit of pleasure tell about you? What does your pursuit of pleasure tell about you? Now, I believe there is nothing uh, inherently wrong about pleasure because there's a right way of enjoying pleasure. There's also a wrong way of enjoying pleasure. But the point is this. What does your enjoyment of pleasure tell about you this morning to yourself? As we are honest before God, what does your pursuit of pleasure tell about yourself? Is your pursuit of pleasure an alternative to the pleasures of God? Or does it flow with a profound contentment in the pleasures of God? Or is it just self-indulgence, just for the sake of pleasure, with all wrong motives and wrong intentions? Now, you may be asking this question, Raven, how do I tell the difference between the two? You mentioned two ways of uh, uh, enjoying pleasure. One, the right thing, which is uh, enjoying pleasures, which uh, are part of the goodness of God. And then you talked about a wrong way as well. How do I distinguish between these two things? It's very simple. And let me ask all of us a few questions. And the way you answer these questions in your own minds will determine how you and I are enjoying pleasures for ourselves. Does your leisure time, your vacation time, have God in it? Does your free time have God in it? Or is God absent totally from your leisure time, or from your entertainment, or from your vacation time? Why do you pursue pleasure today? Is it to fulfill some kind of an emptiness in your heart? Or is it to cover up some pain that you had in the past? Is that the reason why you pursue pleasure this morning? Is there a sense of lack that's driving your pursuit of pleasure? How about your entertainment? What are the kinds of movies you watch? What are the kinds of shows you watch? Are these shows that really please Jesus? Let's ponder these deep questions that would help each one of us in our lives. And even as I talk about pleasure... Let me just talk about three things about worldly pleasure and the dangers of it, and then I'll finish in the next five to ten minutes. I want to talk about, firstly, the lie of worldly pleasure. There is a lie of worldly pleasure. Then the second thing, what are the tricks that come along with this kind of a pleasure? And thirdly, I also want to talk about how this pleasure will cheat you and leave you empty as well. Firstly, or before that, let me, uh, let me help us unravel this just a little bit. In other words, what I'm asking all of us to do here is to think about what the world is offering for us. Sociologists tell us that every single day we are being bombarded by 20,000 images, sometimes mental images, either through radio or through television or internet or, or any kind of a media, even print media. We are being bombarded by 20,000 images and we are being told by the world that if you enjoy this, there is satisfaction. There is some kind of fulfillment or perhaps even lasting fulfillment. What is the lie in this? What is the lie in this? The lie is this, that earthly pleasure can provide you with true satisfaction. You just need to give it a chance. You just need to give it a chance. And earthly pleasure will provide you with lasting satisfaction. That is a lie that is being propounded here. And that's what every commercial asks you to do as well. And that's what every commercial marketing does as well. Just give it a chance. It will work for you. If you're not happy, give it a chance. The reason you're not happy is because you've not given it a chance. And try it out once and you will be happy. That's the lie that is being perpetrated. And so we are asked day after day with these 20,000 images that if you pursue X or buy Y or get into Z, we get lasting satisfaction or we get some kind of a lasting fulfillment. That's a lie. That's a lie. Secondly, I want to talk about what are the tricks that come along with the lie. 
What are the tricks that come along with the lie? When pleasure fails to satisfy us, then the world says, no, if you can only get the right thing, you will be satisfied. You've tried this, try the next thing. Probably that is the right thing for you. And the second thing doesn't work, you move on to the third thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and before you know, you've become a slave of it. You know, let me want to say this, let me say this very, very carefully and with a concern. That's how people get into pornography. That's how people get sucked into pornography. And before you know, you're already have, you already have become a slave. So I want to say this, church, don't buy into this lie. Don't buy into this lie. And if you're into pornography, please believe me, it'll only leave you empty or it'll damage you. It'll only leave you empty or it'll damage you at the end of the day. If your desire is to come out of it, we have a wonderful church family here. To come and talk to any one of us. Talk to the elders. You know who to talk to. I don't need to mention names here. But get all the help from the church that you need to come out of this particular sin. It's a lie. Don't remain in it. You know, you're all very serious. Let me just humor it up a little bit. One of the, one of the things that CBF, uh, one of the things I should say that CBF is blessed with is the number of young people that we have in, in our family, in our church. Well, don't pat yourself too soon on the back. By young, I mean less than 27. Don't lynch me outside because by that standard, I've disqualified myself as well. So, so about 50% of the people here, uh, less than 27. John, you're over 27? You're not under 27. Okay, so you qualify for that. All right. So let me say this to you as candidly as I can, particularly to young people who will get married, perhaps in a year's time or two years' time or three years' time or eventually. And let me say this and listen to me very carefully, please, for this morning. The greatest gift that you can give your spouse when you get married is not a great honeymoon package. It's not, a, it's not the best diamond ring. But the greatest gift that you can give your spouse when, when the whole wedding ceremony is done with, when everybody is gone, you both are alone in the room. It is before God to look into the eyes of your spouse and say, I have kept this body as a temple of the living God. Can you do that? I challenge you, young people. Can you do that? Can you offer that as the best gift for your spouse, for those of you who are going to get married? That I've kept this body as a temple of the living God. I've not pursued any illicit pleasures, either on the internet or even physically. Now, you may be saying, Ravent, I'm far gone into pornography. I... I'm in the shackles of it. And that's the language that some of you used when you came and talked to us. It's concerning. But the point is this. I want to say to you this morning that Jesus Christ can give you hope. Jesus Christ can forgive you of your sin. And there is hope for you in Jesus Christ. Can we all say together 1 John 1 9? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May I ask you this morning to repent of that sin, to get rid of that sin right now, not when you get home, that may be too late, but when you sit right here listening to God's word, would you please repent of it and come out of it? Because it's a lie. It's a trick of lie. It will never satisfy you. And thirdly, how does pleasure cheat you? You're pursuing this pleasure, but along with pleasure came something else that you never expected. And before you could pause long enough, you're horrified to see how it really affected your family, how it really affected your church, how it really affected your society, how it really affected your children as well. And you pause then to think when it's too late that I did not pursue pleasure to get into all this. And I didn't know there were so many devastating effects of this kind of pleasure. So there's a lie of pleasure. There's a tricks that come with it. And finally, pleasure is devastating as well. So what is the Christian solution to all of these things? The biblical solution to hedonism, the biblical solution to pursuit of pleasure is not to renounce pleasure completely. No, there's nothing wrong with the right pleasure. 
but to enjoy the goodness of God, to find a pleasure in God, to find pleasure within biblical boundaries that have been set by God. You know, the world has been lying to Christians, saying that you Christians are people who don't have much fun. Because we use terms like crucify yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross, keep in step with the Spirit, glorify God, and all of these things. And that's why the world tells us that that we don't have enough fun in our lives. But you know what Jesus said? It is only when you die to yourself do you find yourself and find what real pleasure is. So the message of the Bible is this. Those who die to self find pleasures forevermore. Pleasures that are lasting. Pleasures that are more satisfying. And pleasures that are more glorious than all the pleasures this world could give. Because true pleasure is only found in Jesus Christ. It's only found in Jesus Christ. So what's the point of this morning's sermon? The whole passage basically says, pleasure pursued and even achieved apart from a relationship with God and the ultimate pursuit of God cannot satisfy your heart. It cannot satisfy your heart. The search for permanent or even temporary satisfaction in pleasure is a waste of time. It is a waste of time. Let me finish with with this illustration and thank you for praying for me even, even as I spoke this morning. About three weeks ago, I was invited to speak in a place called Badravati in Shimoga district. And uh, when I went there, uh, it was two days of meetings, and I was the only speaker, so you have to give a lot of sermons. And uh, Jorchen and I chuckle about it quite often, because whenever I message him, Jorchen, somebody invited me here, he asked me two questions. Are you the only speaker? I say yes, and then he says, eight sermons, nine sermons. I asked the same question of him too because that's, that's the way it is. So uh, I was almost done with almost all the sermons and I was thoroughly exhausted waiting to get back home. One more sermon was left and uh, the person, Wesley Uncle, who invited me there, he is, he's a famous evangelist in Karnataka. Some of you may have heard of him. So he comes and says, Raven, I want you to meet a very godly woman. She is 92 years old. We all call her Amachi. I said... Uh, why do you call her Amachi? Then he narrated the story. He said, well, she's a Malayali. She was in Kerala, born and raised there. But at, at a very young age, she came to Badravati, and she's 92 now. She's learned Kannada. She's, even, um, she's very fluent in Kannada. She's gone around with me in my ministry, sharing the gospel, and she's been a real backbone for the ministry for the entire region here, she said. Would you want to meet her? I said, I would love to. So we went there, we went inside, and she was lying on bed, just a bag of bones. She had tremors, and she was very happy to see us. And I had tears in my eyes. I held her hands, and I wanted to, and I wanted to be prayed by her instead of praying for her. It was such a blessing to be in her presence. She said, son, I've seen a lot of pain in this world, but now I'm waiting to see the very face of Jesus. I'm waiting to see the very face of Jesus. And the moment she said that, her face just lit up. And then she said, can you sing a song with me in Kannada? And then it happened to be a song that I knew and one of my favorite songs. And so we sang along. Uh, I don't want to sing it here and trouble you, but we we sang along with her. And uh, as I walked away, being more blessed than any blessing I could give in that place, there was one thought that kept coming to my head. And that is this. The psalmist says, there is fullness of joy in your presence. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's fullness of joy in his presence. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. It is only in Jesus that you will find the true pleasures and right right pleasures and pleasures that are really satisfying. Because at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Thank you so much for your patience. May God bless you all. Let's uh, close in prayer. Father God, this morning we come to you. Thank you for speaking to us through your word that was written about thousands of years ago. And yet it's so pertinent to each one of us living here in the 21st century. Father, we realize this morning that pleasure pursued for pleasure's sake 
is futile, is vanity, is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. But finding pleasure in you, finding pleasure in Jesus is the right kind of pleasure where we realize who we are and we enjoy ourselves within the boundaries that we, that we have been set. Father, even as we have listened to this and even as we think about what your word has spoken to us this morning, there are several of us who are struggling with various issues. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would continue to work in our hearts and enable us to repent of our sin and purify us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we pray, O oh Lord, that we take these lessons seriously from Solomon and we pray that we would see the implementation in our lives and we only pursue pleasures in Christ Jesus. We also want to thank you for the rest of the uh, meetings. We pray for the time of fellowship and the sisters' meeting and in the evening, um, Hindi meeting as well, O oh Lord. We pray for your hand of blessing upon each one of them. We want to thank you for today in Jesus' name. Thank you, Ravant. Morning, CBF. Welcome, everyone, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have a few visitors here with us. Um, as I call out your names, I'm requesting you to either stand up or raise your hand where you're seated so we can meet up with you later. We have Aishwarya's parents, Brother Matthew and Sister Anita, visiting us from Kochi. Seated right there. We also have Aishwarya's friend, Leah Sarah George, visiting us from Kochi. And we have Steve Sargent, who's also visiting us. They're all seated there. You may be seated. Uh, we also have, one second. We also have Kenzie's parents, Brother Thomas and Sister Ivy, visiting us from Kerala, seated right there. All right. Now can we all welcome them together? Our schedule for Sunday morning, at 9 a.m. we meet here in this hall for worship in the Lord's table. At 10.05 we have ministry from God's word. Next week, Brother Jobin will be speaking. Um, 11.25, today we will have the Sunday school and the sister study. So requesting the children to stay back and the sisters to gather together at 11.25. Next week we will have the couple study. Um, meetings for the week. Sunday at 3.45, we have the Hindi Fellowship. Today it will be at Jenny and Jerry and Bernice's home. Sorry. Um, on Tuesday at 8 p.m., we have a Bible study at Domlur. This will be at Prashant and Kirtana's home this week. On Wednesday at 8 p.m., we have the cell group meeting in Kodmangla. This is at Sarjan and Shilpa's home. On Thursdays, we have two meetings. At 8 p.m., we have a Bible study at HSR Layout. This is at Jerry and Bernice's home. And at 8 p.m., we also have a cottage meeting in North Bangalore. This week, it will be at Pisti and Minu's home. On Friday, for those who are working in the evening or the night shifts, we have a meeting at 9.30 a.m. And this, will, this week, it will be at Betty's home. Students group, through the week, we also meet um, at certain college uh, locations. On Mondays at 7.30 p.m., we have the Christ University Boys Study. This is at Sean's home. On Tuesday at 4.30, we have the Christianity College Girls Study. This will be at Benji and Preeti's home this week. On Wednesday at 7.30 a.m., we have the St. Joseph's Boys Study at Garuda Mall. Um, on Thursday at 5.30 p.m., we have the Christ University Girls Study at Shilpa's home. And on Friday at 6 p.m., we have the Christianity College Boys Study at Jobin's home. Meetings for the month. Um, the next fasting and prayer will be on the 10th of August from 8 p.m. to midnight. This will be at Rebicha and Anashamama's home. The next Kadesh ministry will be on the uh, 11th of August, Saturday, uh, between 12 and 4 p.m. The next outreach will be on the 18th of August, between 5 and 6. This happens at two locations. One is Blessing Garden Bhairati, and the second one is Martali. The next single girl study is on the 25th of August between 4.30 and 5.30 p.m. The location is yet to be decided. 
Truth and Life Academy is having their next seminar titled The God Who is Understanding His Nature and Attributes, requesting that you register as soon as possible. This will be on the 25th of August uh, from 9.30 to 1.30 p.m., 1.15 p.m. at Clarence High School. As announced, CBF camp is from the 12th of October to the 14th of October. You will have to plan it as it's not a public holiday, so requesting you all to take note of the dates if you haven't. And for those who haven't yet registered, please do so as soon as possible. All right, birthdays and anniversaries, anyone, this week? Caleb's birthday is next Sunday. Georgie's birthday. Danny's birthday. Ajit's, Ajit's birthday. All right, he's willing to stand up for it. He's ready to stand up. Dima's birthday. Okay, can we sing the birthday song for, for them? Prayer points, uh, Nisha's dad had a fall and has a swollen eye and a crack in the hip. There is a surgery scheduled for tomorrow. Let's continue praying as there is also a complication with regard to that. And Kenzie will be admitted in the hospital tomorrow for C-section. Um, travel, we have Liju and family traveling to Kerala this week. And also Stancy, Susan and the kids traveling back to the U.S. Um, now, John Vergis will come and close the meeting in prayer. But right after the meeting is over, requesting every